0: My name is Daniel Wagner, I'm the College and Young Adults pastor here, and I am really excited to be up here again. My um, guy Robert Aiken on the way in said, wow, twice in one month, that's really something. And uh, glad you guys are here for us bringing the word, excited uh, to follow Nick Crawford last week, who did just a great job preaching sincerely about an anxious heart. Man, we need um, a balm for an anxious spirit in this 21st century Western America, and praise Jesus that he's the one who gives it to us. The week before, I talked about what could happen with an unguarded heart. Next week, someone is preaching about uh, a heart that won't accept correction. And this week, I'm preaching about a heart of envy. And let me just tell you something personally, right? I I want this to be a confessional place, a church where we are all seeking uh, growth and repentance together. Envy, jealousy, pettiness, bitterness, man, those are things that are hard for me. I mean, really hard for me. And I don't really know why, as long as I can remember, I've just had a problem comparing myself to other people. Uh, I could do all of the trendy diagnostic tests on myself and give you different letters and numbers and stuff like that to tell you maybe how some of that manifests itself. But deep inside of me, there's just always been this, uh, this weird, I'm not good enough if someone's better than me. So, sometimes you read the Bible and sometimes the Bible reads you. And as I've worked at this sermon this week, I'm really praying that that would be true for many of you who might be like me on this endless hamster wheel of achievement and trying to prove self worth. And see, envy is one of the ways that that manifests itself. I don't know if we have this picture on the screen, but I'm going to show you a humiliating picture of myself. I'm the little 10 or 11-year-old blonde kid over there that looks really excited about losing and being in second place. Um, now, look, I know that that's a martial arts picture. This is really bad, because some of you guys, like, y'all are just bros out there. You're going to come up, you're going to slap me in the back of the head, and you're going to be like, I thought you were an ninja. You should have seen that coming. I'm 10 in that picture, okay? So, like, some stuff has faded. We can take that down, because that's too much for me. Uh, but second place there with a little emo swoopy haircut as a 10-year-old. And and I was just not excited about losing. And that's the interesting part about that uh, activity, sport, discipline, is it's, it's individual, right? So it's you versus someone else. And you're doing something or fighting someone, and you either come up short or someone grades you or judges you in a way where you're not up to what you would think is your own personal level of achievement. And that's really... Uh, stuck with me my whole life. I mean, I I had pretty vivid memories, not of that particular loss. I lost plenty. I take plenty of L's in my life. But I just remember vividly one time when I was uh, about that age going into a bathroom and crying. So if you've wept in a bathroom and God sees you and I see you too, uh, hopefully you've moved past that season. And uh, at least if you were a child, and if there's something in your life, man, we'd love to minister to you and walk you through that. But I just remember feeling so low, like I was a failure, like I was a disappointment, but not just in myself, but in what the other person had, right? The person who was the winner, the person who was successful. And that spirit has really followed me through a lot of my life, where I look at other people, I think we're all like this, who are a step ahead. They got the thing that we wanted. Uh, We've been waiting on something for a long time, and, and God's come through for them, and he hasn't come through for us, Or maybe just happenstance or connections or the the family someone was born into, the people that someone know, the place of their employment versus yours, their friend group versus your friend group, whatever it is, right? I'm, I'm speaking in general terms because you know what it is in you that causes envy. And today I want to look at two proverbs, two passages, and a plan for how to fight against envy. Two proverbs, two passages, and a plan to fight against envy in us. So uh, we'll be in First Samuel 19 and then we'll also be in Genesis 16. You pick your passage. Uh, if you're a paper Bible person, there's that if you want a Bible. Uh, there's some in the pews in front of you. I was at a wedding here last night and I, I picked a pew Bible up and uh, there's a note in the front that I forgot was even there. If you are new-ish to the faith, if your Bible didn't make it, the last time you moved houses or apartments or cities or whatever and you need a Bible, then it would be the ministry of our church to let you walk out the door with one of those Bibles that are in front of you. Uh, As I've stalled for time, 1 Samuel 19 is where we'll pick up. And here's the backdrop of this. The three primary players in this passage are Saul, who was the first king of Israel. God had freed the Israelites from captivity, started that with Abraham, that we'll look at later in this sermon and had moved them into the promised land. They seized it under Joshua. The judges secured more of the land for them and helped them establish as they ruled and reigned, and then Israel said, we want a king. So God said, that's a bad idea, but I'll give you a king anyway. Sometimes we ask God for things, and he gives it to us, even though it's a bad idea. So they got Saul, and then David was chosen after Saul as the Lord's anointed king. And there's this thing, if you're familiar in the story of David and Saul, that there's this timeline that gets really... um, complicated, where Saul is still ruling and reigning, and David is patiently waiting in the ranks as the Lord's anointing. But what we see is Saul's progressive implosion, really, out of a lot of things, envy being one of them that we're going to look at today, and David's faithfulness to wait in God's timing to step in to what he had promised that he would step into. And then Jonathan is this third player that we look at. Jonathan, Saul's son, David's friend, who was fiercely committed to David, even though it didn't really make sense. If you think about it, Saul was the king. Jonathan was the king's son. So the way that that works, like it does today and back then, is Jonathan was next in the line of secession. So when Saul died, if David was out of the picture, Jonathan would be the king. But Jonathan was so faithfully committed to both the Lord and to what God was working in, David, that he was a selfless friend and a brother to him. A beautiful picture of male friendship we find in David and Jonathan. I think that uh, that's something that our world really needs, is for men to be friends with each other. I pray that this church would be a place where men could make meaningful connections together. But as we pick up with that, as the context and the backdrop, we'll look at this together in 1 Samuel 19. Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants, that they should kill David. Well, that's a pretty dramatic place to pick up. What happened right before that? Well, as you're familiar, some of you, with the story of Saul and David, David defeated Goliath, and then basically went on streaks of holy war. And uh, as they secured the land and fought against enemies, as God was blessing the nation of Israel, we saw uh, women a couple of chapters before this saying that Saul killed his thousands and David killed his ten thousands. So David's reputation was growing as Saul's reputation was shrinking, and that made Saul jealous. So we see Saul has kind of shifted his plan from, hey, let's send David into these really questionable situations where we're not sure whether or not he'll live or die. We'll leave him into a a bunch of armies, a bunch of Philistine armies. Paul sent David on a very peculiar errand to be able to marry his daughter right before that. I'd go into detail about that if we were at a men's event, but it's uh, male-related accessories. So send him to retrieve a bunch of those, and this is where we pick up right afterwards. Saul spoke to Jonathan that they should kill David. All right, so their plan has gone from, let's get these guys to kill David, let's kill David. This kid's lived long enough, taken enough of my glory. I don't care what God says. I want what he has, which is my reputation, my rightful place as king. I want this. This guy needs to die. But Jonathan, who was Saul's son, delighted much in David, and Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself, and I'll go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I'll speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. So Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and he said to him, let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand when he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all of Israel, and Jonathan really gets him here, you saw it and rejoiced. So he's saying, hey, Saul, look, you saw this. You saw God move. You saw that uh, something could be good for David and be good for you at the same time, But, but you're turning your back on that. I mean, he's really taking his dad to the mat here. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? So Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan, and Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death, And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. So we're thinking, all right, cool, this is great, story resolved, happily ever after, they're going to live, Saul's going to do what he's supposed to do, be faithful to God. Jonathan, what a great dude, I mean, what a faithful man of God, this is going to be great. And then there was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before the Lord. So here's David doing what David does, he goes out, takes care of business, he comes back. Then a harmful spirit of the Lord came upon Saul, as he sat in his house with a spear in his hand. And David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear. But he, that's David, eluded Saul, so that he struck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. So what do we see here? Why did I tell you this Uh, moment here in the middle of the story of Saul and David and Jonathan, this really fascinating triad of submission to the Lord and jealousy and envy. It's really interesting to see this picture and what happens to Saul, because like I said earlier, as David increased, Saul saw himself as decreasing. He did not think that there was place for both of them, a king that was ruling and reigning and a king that was on his way to ruling and reigning. Saul could not look at David's life and see that what was good for David was good for Saul because what was good for David was good for the nation of Israel, and as the king of Israel, it was going to be good for Saul. And I'm convinced that we do that in our own life. Like we see other people who are, quote-unquote, getting ahead. They're getting theirs. They're doing well. Maybe it's friendship or career. They're on a vacation you wish you were on. Well, whatever it is for you, like whatever envy you're facing, you're feeling you think that someone else's success is not necessarily a good thing for you. And that's what we see in Saul and in David. Two men, maybe some male ego there, but something that I think we can all resonate with. This is where I want to go to that first proverb in Proverbs 6. This is in the context of taking something that's not yours and seeking to take something that's not yours. Jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge he will accept no compensation, even though you multiply gifts. Although we're not going to get into the specifics of the gifts that David gave to Saul. He was seeking to win his approval, right? He was seeking to serve him. He was seeking to bless him. He was seeking faithfulness, but Saul still was not about seeing David's health and thriving. He could not get over David having this thing that Saul desperately wanted which was the acclaim and the love of his people, quote-unquote his people. Saul couldn't get past it because he couldn't get the thing that he wanted. And, and I want to posit that question to us today. I'll, I'll tell you, you know, if you're like me, sometimes you don't get the thing that you want. But what happens to your faith whenever you don't get your desires? Let's put that on the screen. Sometimes you don't get the thing you want. I'm sorry this is a news flash. I'm breaking news to you today. But life just doesn't shake out your way sometimes. But the question that I want us to look at here is what happens to your faith when you don't get your desire? What is that thing? What's the thing that you think you have to have? What is it? And when you don't get that thing, if there's a season of waiting or a no that God gives you or a lack of ability for you to go out and get it on your own, What's the thing you think you have to have for everything in your life to fall into place? And what happens to your faith when you don't get that desire? See, I think envy does something fascinating to us, right? It says it makes a man furious. Furious. What's furious? It's angry to the point of not being able to be consoled. It's a, it's a lunacy, It's something that swells up inside of you that you just can't kill and you just can't put to bed. That's what fury is. And a lot of times we get to that place whenever we compare ourselves to other people because we listen to what envy is telling us and now what security is telling us. All right, we have security as children of God. We have security as people who follow in the work of Jesus Christ and believe in his person for salvation. As people who have the Holy Spirit inside of us We're temples, God's workmanship. We should feel secure in our position. So often we don't. So I want to put this on the screen. Here's what happens. Envy will tell you that other people's success equals my failure. But a position of security says other people's success equals God's goodness. Right, here's what envy tells us. This is probably where we live most of the time. I'm just going to be honest. This is where I live most of the time. I can see someone doing better than me. You know, we'll make it personal about my life right, going to a place I want to go, you know, working a job that I might think I want to work for, like, you know, 15 minutes, then I realize I'm happy here, preaching a better sermon than I preach, like, you know, being better looking than I am, like, whatever it is, you know what I'm saying, like, we all got that stuff, but when I get envious, I'm saying, hey, look, because they are doing this, that means that I am less than, right, because they are successful, because they're doing x, y, z, a, b, c, one, two, three, I'm a failure, and I'll tell you, if you claim the name of Jesus Christ, this is where you should live. out of a place of security that would tell you their success is God's goodness. God is working in them. He's blessing them, right? And if they're not a believer, we can trust the Bible where it says that rain falls on the just and the unjust. Life's not going to shake out your way sometimes. What are you going to do when you don't get that thing that you want. Which of these mindsets are you going to take on? Are you going to operate out of envy? Or are you going to operate out of security? And I'll tell you that that changes the way that you interact with people. I want to throw a picture on a screen, cite a study for you that was done by a guy named Chung Ling Feng in China a couple of years ago. And here's what happened they uh, came up with this test There was actually a fake test. They had these people come in and sit at the screen and count dots essentially on a screen and they told you based on your ability to count dots in a limited time that you were either a one-star player being the worst a two-star player meaning like yeah you count dots just fine or a three-star player which is you're the best dot counter we've ever seen very dumb right like (laughs) i mean a dot counter seriously right but here's what happened there were no one-star players there were no two-star players I'm sorry, there were no three-star players. No one-stars, no three-stars. They found these people and they made them look at this dot screen thing. They didn't even care, nobody was keeping score. They just gave them a fake number. And then they showed these people, after they told them, hey, you're a, you're a two-star player, you count dots, just fine. Some uh, injection that was happening in these people's faces. Now, it was a fake video. No one really took a needle to the face for the sake of this experiment. But what happened was is that the people who were two-star players, so just the people there, they felt some degree of compassion for the one-star players being stuck in the face. Something like, oh, wow, you're a terrible dot counter, and they shot you with a needle? I feel so bad for you. But the people who were, again, let's remember what we're talking about, better dot counters, the best at counting dots, they felt little or no level of compassion for their painful injection to the face. About counting dots, how much more do we care about things that are more significant than counting dots? Envy makes us have a low view of people made in the image of God, who God has on a plan, on a path, and has a purpose for them, whether they know it or not and your position around them as a believer, right, if you're in this place, you are seeking faith or you're walking in faith, and I'm so thankful that you're here, but if you take the name of Jesus Christ on, God has put you in the place he's put you so that you can serve and bless and love people so that you could know God and make him known in the lives of others. And envy says, I don't care about your suffering. I don't care about your pain, I don't care about your inconvenience, if I think that you are better than me. And that's a weird place to operate. A strange view of people made in the image of God. So I want us to look at our second passage, which is Genesis 16. And as we look at Genesis 16, this is set in Abraham and Sarah, those characters that you may have heard of, but this is before their name change, before their son Isaac was born. So Abram and Sarai, if I use names interchangeably, that's who I'm talking about. You know, this is for free, but we we sang Fresh Wind earlier about God's spirit moving. It's beautiful. The the name change that Abram and Sarai experience, they just get an H put in their name. Abram goes to Abraham, Sarai goes to Sarah, and it's fascinating that, yeah, their names change, they mean new things, but that H sound in the Hebrew concept is uh, God's spirit at move. So every time they spoke to each other or someone spoke to them, they would remember that it's God's spirit who did a work and who changed them. I would pray that God's spirit would do a work in many of us today. So we have this backdrop where they're in the land for 10 years, still no kid. God called Abram in Genesis 12, and he said, I'm going to make you a father of many nations, and this guy has got zero kids. So he's trying to think how am i going to be a father of many nations if i have no children and he and sarai sarah start to get a little antsy so they take things into their own hands this is what we see sarai who was abram's wife had borne him no children now she had a female egyptian servant whose name was hagar now let me set the backdrop for you here even if you're familiar with the story of hagar and abram and sarai we see that she's an Egyptian, which for this original audience, who Moses would have been telling this story to, uh, who were coming out of slavery in Egypt, they would have seen Egyptian, and they would have gone, ah, she's going to be the bad guy. Like, just watch. She's going to do something, and what we find instead is that it's God's people who are acting outside of God's will, God's people who were jealous and envious and destructive. I pray that's not us. And Sarai said to Abram, behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Abram, is saying, hey, look, I want this thing, and God's not going to give it to me. So let's take it into our own hands. Go sleep with my servant. It shall be that I shall obtain children by her. A weird custom. We wouldn't think that that's how it works today, but in the ancient Near East, that's how you could expand households. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, there's that timeline again, 10 years of waiting. Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he slept with Hagar, and she conceived, and when she had conceived, this is Hagar, Hagar looked looked with contempt on her mistress. So when Hagar was in a position of power, a position of authority. When she had the thing that she knew that Sarai wanted, she looked down on her. So Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. So Sarai, man, she's at the end of herself. She had this idea and she thought this was going to be good and now this thing got away from her because it's shaken out differently than she thought it was. She really wanted a child. She saw that as a promise that God had given to her, one that he would fulfill but not in that time and not in that way that she had thought. But what we find here is that she's so hard-pressed like she's so crushed by this moment that she is uh, invoking God's name to judge her husband. Not a great look. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. This is not great marriage advice, guys. Uh, The Bible shows us a lot of what to do and a lot of what not to do. So then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she, that's Hagar, fled from her. And the story goes on to God finding Hagar, to redeeming her, to bringing her back. It's a beautiful story about God seeking out the ones on the margins, the least and the lost but we're going to live here with Sarah's envy, right? Sarah could not get over Hagar having the thing that she wanted, and what's so strange is she might be the one that that could have understood what Sarah was going through the most, right? She was also a wife to her husband. Uh, This is not uh, me advocating for polygamy. If you read the Bible, you see that that never works out well for anybody. Uh, One spouse is probably enough to keep up with for most of us, But what we find here is that she isolates herself from someone who could have been a friend and could have been a servant and could have been someone who would see her in her pain and help her. But her jealousy, her envy, her bitterness made her deal harshly, most likely meaning that she was physically abusive to someone who she was supposed to shepherd and care for and lead because of envy, because of bitterness, because she had what she wanted. So I want us to look at our next proverb in Proverbs 14 that says, A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Envy makes the bones rot. I mean, that's a beautiful uh, analogy there. I love that picture because we see life given to the flesh. What's that? That's a tranquil heart a heart that's at peace, a heart that would say, I have what I have. I'm faithfully following God and I'm going to walk in his will and his ways. I'm going to trust that he's a provider. I'm going to trust that he's going to give me the things that I need. But a heart of envy is what it compares it to, which says it makes the bones rot. Now, I pulled out a heart a couple of weeks ago. I'm not about to pull out a rotten bone. I don't even know where I would find that. I don't even know how I found the heart. Google's a weird place, guys. Google at your own risk. But what this is is uh, a bunch of rotten wood. And, like, if you're like me and you're occasionally in the woods, I know I have tight pants on, but I still go to the woods sometimes. I live in Mississippi. Like, this rotten wood looks like it should do its job, right? Like, it looks like it would be a part of a tree and it would uphold small birds and, you know, things that live in trees like raccoons and squirrels and all that kind of stuff. But whenever you kinda take a look, you see that this thing is rotten out. It's let something in that it shouldn't have in rain. So like with rotten wood, like rotten bones, what happens is when our life is under pressure, I'm a thick kid, so this might not go well. Like when you're under pressure and you have things in your life that are squeezing you that you should be able to maintain, that you should be able to take in that shouldn't bother you, what happens? your bones rot, you crack, you have this pressure that, that causes you to implode, you snap, right? That's what we say a lot, you snap. And if we are the, the vine and Jesus is the branches, if we come out from him, a lack of connection to him will make us susceptible to envy that makes us rot, and this is what happens for a lot of us. This is what happened in this example with Sarah and Hagar. We find that envy often occurs when you're, o- when you're not okay with it not being your turn. I hit a double negative on you, but one of them is in quotes, so I think that's permissible. English teachers, find me later. Envy occurs when you're not okay with it not being your turn. Not being your turn. My wife and I have a, a little girl who's going to be two in a couple of days, And like any almost two year old, there are plenty of stories I could tell you about her not sharing well. And I wish that it just stopped it too for most of us, but it doesn't. We're not good at seeing someone else have something that we want or do something that we wish we were doing. In a place we wanna be, with the people we wanna be with, looking the way we would like to look. We're not okay when it's not our turn. And I wanna read this quote out that I found from this book. This is what inspired this. It's by uh, a a biracial woman who's a Seventh-day Adventist that's uh, named Heather Thompson Day, and the book is called, It's Not Your Turn. So really original at that point. Here's what she said about how uh, her lack of ability to be okay when it wasn't her turn, what that did to her. I didn't wanna judge, but things got pretty judgy My jealousy blurred my vision. I saw myself as someone who had gone up the mountain, and I became resentful when God didn't say thank you. All I saw was myself and how hard I tried to get God to notice me. Ultimately, this belief that God was holding out on me hindered everything I thought about who God was and who I was in relation to him. It also destroyed how I was able to see other people. And i didn't see people i saw competition and god was the guy at the top of the mountain watching to see which one of us would play the part well enough to reach him first what happens when we start to want something more than we want god that's when god suddenly starts to feel distant that thing we want gets closer and closer on our hearts God feels further and further away. But God didn't move. We moved God. I learned to say it's not your turn. I prayed I could genuinely clap for someone who had what I didn't. I prayed I could trust God to judge his children so that I wouldn't have to. I decided who I was, while it wasn't my turn, would determine who I could be when it was. That thing read me. This is what we see. James 3 gives us a great explanation for why we are the way that we are often. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So, who's got it going on? Well, it's the people who walk out faithfully with God in meekness. Contentment, humility. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. That's good right there but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Now, what happens when you live that kind of life? When those are the things that you seek, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. A harvest of righteousness, what's that mean? It means that your life can be lived in right relationship with God and with others. A life of faithful peace, walking in security, walking in contentment, fighting against envy, that doesn't mean everything in your life is going to be up and to the right. But it does mean that in your moments of suffering, in your moments of temptation, in your moments of insecurity, God will be nearer and dearer to you because of the work that you've done in the easy seasons of your life. We have an opportunity to build faith, to build security in a place where we can be loved and secure and believed to the best end by our Heavenly Father. That should change the way that we compare ourselves to other people in a way that we don't, where we can see that other people's success doesn't equal our failure. But so often we can't do that. Why? Why? What's the deal with us? There's a Latin concept. I don't usually throw Latin up here, but it's this phrase that some third, fourth, fifth century early Christian fathers coined. They would call it incurvitus in se, which means that uh, people are by nature curved inward on themselves. That we think about ourselves more than other people actually think about us. That we can't get out of our own way. That's what causes us to be envious, I'd say. This incurvitus in se that we are all about us by default. And what that does for most people is that takes you to a place, I heard a pastor say once, where you have a superiority complex or an inferiority complex. A superiority complex like like Saul or an inferiority complex like Sarai. And here's what these do for us. If you have a superiority complex, you say, hey, look, I'm the best the, the grace who's ever lived, I would say, see Jesus. But beyond that, when you have a superiority complex, you have the need to constantly one up. You never let anyone else win. Right? Can you resonate with that? I've, I've got to be the guy. Every room I go into, I've got to be the person. Right? They did this. I did this. Oh, you know that guy? Well, I know this guy. Is that you? Or an inferiority complex, where you say, I'm never good enough. You think that everyone is better than you, and you hate them for it, right? In an inferiority complex, I think we think, hey, I'm inferior, and, um, you know, everybody else is better than me, and I'm just going to stay over here and and be quiet and to myself in the corner, I'm not going to leave my house, but what ends up happening in your feelings of inferiority? You hate people for what they have and what you don't. So, this is what we see. It's that both a superiority complex and an inferiority complex, they're an addiction to self worship and self absorption. And curved us and say, we're curved in ourselves. We can only see us. All you're doing is looking to yourself. So, what do we do? Like, how do we get out of this thing? How do we move? How do we, how do we push this off? Where does this come from? how do we move through this it's by having a right view of ourselves as children of god it's only by having a right view of ourselves as children of god children of god that we would see that hey because i'm god's child he sees me and he holds me and he knows me and he keeps me and one day there is a future coming for me that's glorious I know I don't have the things that I want right now. If you're a believer, I know that you probably don't have the things that you want right now, right? There's something, there's something. And some of you, I've said this before, Robert said this before, some of you are holding on to a promise that God never gave you. But some of you know that God might be calling you into something and it feels like it's just this far away. Or some of you may have a deep discontentment with who you are. So you constantly measure yourself against other people. But in keeping a right view of yourself as one who God formed and holds and keeps, that's how we fight against envy. The greatest commandment, love God, love your neighbor as yourself, the second. You can only love your neighbor well if you love yourself well and your constant comparing, your one-upping, your inferiority-complex-driven hatred and cynicism. That goes away when we see who God is and what he's doing in us. I want to invite you to stand as I read a passage for us as the band comes back up. When I think about what it means for us to be a child of God, what it means for me, what it means for those of you who would call on his name, and those of you who might be in the room, you might be watching online, you're not a believer, God extends this invitation to you that these things that I'll read here in Romans 8 could be true for you, starting in verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit's you have put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery. We're not children of the slave, we're children of the free. We're not in the line of faith of Hagar, we're in the line of faith of Sarah. But you receive the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Abba. Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits what that we are children of God. Now, why is that a big deal? Why does that matter? Here it is in 17. And if children, then we're heirs. What's that mean? We have things coming to us. There's fulfillment, power, authority, assurance, blessing, security coming to us as heirs. Heirs with God and fellow heirs with Christ. There's nothing in heaven, nothing in the new earth, nothing when he comes back that's withheld from us. You want things now? There's something desperate that you cling to that you feel like God's keeping from you? Guess what? There's a day coming where he ain't holding nothing back. Every good gift is ours. Every created thing is ours. Heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful that we can declare in this place because of your work on the cross, Jesus, that we are heirs. We are your children and you share with your children good things. Lord, I think about how you talk to us about prayer. and You'd say because you're a good father, you're not gonna give us if we ask for a fish, a snake, or if we ask for a loaf of bread, a rock. God, so many times we want things desperately. God, I know in a room like this, there's a lot of anticipation, a lot of hope, a lot of faith. Lord, a lot of things that we feel like you should give us. But God, would we be patient and faithful and open-handed in what we seek? Lord, would we see that the rain falls on the just and the unjust? That sometimes people walking outside of your will, people who don't know you, people who even hate you, God, they have lives that we think we would want to live. But Lord, would we see that the life that we can live in you, the abundant life is a life worth pursuing. Lord, would we suffer with you? Would we follow you? Would we deny ourselves? Would we live out gospel lives? So that one day, Lord, because of your work, we can reign with you and hold all things and have all things. Lord, in a room like this, I know that there's a lot of envy. Lord, we're people, we're curved in on ourselves. And God, there's some work you wanna do in us. So Spirit, would you work and make hard hearts soft? Lord, would you show us a root of bitterness, a perception we have of someone else, things we can't move past? Lord, would you help us turn those things over to you, trusting that you are the giver of every good and perfect gift. Lord, would you work in us today? Will we be faithful people to you? Jesus, we ask these things in your great name.